Can I Interject, Episode 3. Daily Dunkers, Sport During the COVID-19 Pandemic and Top 10 Cuisines. Recorded on 1st of August in the year 2020. Hello, you're listening to Can I Interject, a podcast where three Scottish kinsmen discuss a wide range of topics. I'm Gregor, and with me I have my brother Neil. Hello. And our brother-in-law Dan. Hello. So before we dive into the topics, we'll just have a quick catch-up on our week so far. So Dan, you want to start us off? What have you been up to this week? Um, well, I, I've just I've just come back from two nights away in Canusty. Very nice, very quiet. Uh, just first dipping our toes in back into the real world. It was really, really lovely, really lovely time. Just myself and the missus, and we just sat about and did very little for two days, which was lovely. And the other five days, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> did absolutely nothing for two, and nothing worthy of note for the other five. Right, so nothing of note for Dan. No, it was no, it was nice. Like, like we've, you know, we've we've been going at bits and pl- bits and pieces, just going to. Like we've had time in St Andrews, and we've tried trying restaurants out and stuff like that, and just sort of sussing out what it's like in the real world again, and trying to figure out the the best way to go about it before we get locked down again. Neil, what about you? Anything more noteworthy? So I've also dipped my toes into the hospitality uh, industry last week, uh, looking at wedding venues. Turns out to be quite a, a tough challenge at the minute. Seems to be quite a lot. Very, very high demand at the moment, as uh, we're being told by everybody, but we're still uh, still on the hunt, so we're a nice uh, night away in Scotland, the borders. And during the week this week, I've taken uh, the first steps. I had my first gym workout. Joined the local gym and had my first workout yesterday. I would say it's good to be back, but obviously it's they're still very strict at the minute with social distancing. Half the machines are off. But the other side of it is it's very, very quiet. It's definitely going to be a regular occurrence again. Well, for now anyway. You need to you need to get back up here, Neil, to play some golf. I am next weekend. Are you going to Canusty? Because you'll be the youngest by about 50 years going around that golf course. On It, it was like a cross between Caddyshack and Dear the Walking Dead. I'm actually playing in Tayport next week. Not Tayport, sorry. Uh, yeah, just south of the Tay. Not Craig's. I'm, I'm, I'm going on a golf holiday. In Scotland, because my Portugal trip was cancelled next next week. So I'm coming north of the border instead. It's lucky they shut down Portugal then, wasn't it? Otherwise we never get you back. Well, yeah, that's true. Oh, the flights are definitely ramping up. For the If the listeners uh, want to know that, I'm an engineer at the airport at the moment, and the, fl- the flights have been ramping up for the last month. Started off at 2, and now it's up at 25 a day. But they're all being cancelled again, because Spain's back in lockdown. Well, they're off the quarantine list. Or on the quarantine list, rather, for us, aren't they? Yeah, so... I played golf last night. Surprisingly quiet on the course. I was going to join, but it was getting late in July. It was getting late in the season. So I just thought, I'll leave it and just play random courses and see which one I like. So I do half, like, half price memberships mid-year? Uh, no. It's top 200 golf course, Gregor. It's top course. <laughs> What is it? Close house? Huddersfield Golf Club. Oh yeah, of course. Gregor, what's uh, what have you been up to this week? Well, I too, I've been. I went for my first proper sit-down meal since 
We were allowed back at the restaurants. Went to KFC. Nice slap up dinner. <laughs> Classy. Chicken dinner. Went there last Friday. It was good. Uh, this week got my crocodile bird delivered. Congratulations. Came quicker than I thought, so I've had that on the go the last couple of days. Can we have another quick rundown on uh, your crocodile board for the new listeners <laughs> and uh, for people that can't remember from the last episode? So it's a wooden a circular board that sits on your table and it's waxed and so you get these little discs like in a, a wooden buttons and you flick them across the board and the aim is to get it as close to the centre as you can and also knocking your opponent's buttons away from the or disc away from the the point scoring places. There's pegs in the middle of the board as well so if you hit the peg it just bounces off it but it's surprisingly friction free. Yeah, very slick. So I've been enjoying that. Probably get that out over the weekend again. Is this our main contender for the next games night? Next family games night? Definitely be coming out yeah when we're back face to face. You can even get a little tournament on the go. It it does play four, but if not, the table doesn't really allow it, just because you need people sit, you need a kind of square table, which I've not got. Uh, but we can play a round robin, 2v2. Games are quite quick. It's, say, we played two games last night, and it was only about 45 minutes or so. So maybe 10, 10 20 minutes of game. That's, that's a lot longer than I thought. It can be quicker, because it's the first to, to 100 differential, so it, you can have a couple of rounds, and you you've won. Um, or it could be a lot of back and forth. So it depends how kind of close it is. But it's a lot of fun. If I'm honest, it looks like the kind of game that we're going to play towards the end of the night. That's a wind-down kind of game. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it, that's also what worries me, because that is the time of the evening when you expect, or when the propensity to spill a drink increases. I don't think we had a game's night without a spilled drink after 11 o'clock in the evening. So. There's not been any collateral damage, though, has there? Not yet. The Sushi Go Party cards dried out fine. Forgot about that one. Surprisingly. Oh, those are probably the highlights. I did have something else worth mentioning. Would it possibly be the 35 degree heat yesterday? No, it's not that. Up in up in Canusti, it was only 17 degrees. It was quite it was quite cool. Next to, fact of the day, the second sunniest city in the entire of the UK. Well, next to is Dundee. Only behind Torquay as the first place is the most sunny place in Britain. Mid-20s here. Right, that's, that's probably me. Uh, so let's kick into the topics then. I'm up, I suppose. So my topic this week is the British and Irish institution that is the Dearly Dunkers snack foods. So a bit of history. Dearly Dunkers, um, obviously part of the Dearly brand, used formerly of Kraft, that well-known American brand conglomerate. About seven years ago, split off all their inter- like their international brands into a separate com- company. So the company now is Mondelez International, um, which is now basically the holding company for all of Kraft's international brands. And among them is Dairy Lee. Got a couple of different products, or sorry, a few different products, um, one of which is Dairy Lee Dunkers. And now, growing up, I remember these to be sort of breadsticks in the main body of the carton. And then you had a small amount of Dairy Lee processed soft cheese in the smaller portion of the carton. Then you would dip the breadsticks into the cheese, dip, eat, dip, eat, repeatedly until you run out of cheese or breadsticks. That's changed somewhat now, though. I remember they brought in these 
jumbo tubes. So they're like sort of a, a corn snack tube, a herby corn snack tube. And they've replaced the breadsticks altogether now, which I think is a great move because they're so much superior to the to the breadsticks. So I'm glad they've went for the they've they've now become the default choice. I think you still get the breadsticks, but they're kind of uh, they're the special now rather than the other way about. So this week we had very little homework this week, but the one thing we did have to do was each eat a daily Dunkers snack. Now not everybody was so keen on this idea, but I think everyone's managed it. Reluctant, reluctance is the word. So this is going to be this is going to be a discussion on what you think of them, um, what the what the problems with them are, uh, and any solutions that we think we can come up between those to 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 rectify those problems. So Neil, as you say, most reluctant, do you want to kick us off with a review? Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, I'll start off with my experience in purchasing them. So normally, as I remember, as Gregor said, you got the breadsticks and you got the I don't know, is that a chive chive corn snack that you dip in as well? But then, uh, to my amazement, there was also some sort of bugle-shaped corn snack as well. There was there was four different varieties. I can't remember the last one. Uh, but I instantly defaulted to the chive and corn uh, version of it. Overpriced. Not if you buy the multi-packs. I bought mul- one multi-pack of... So, a pack of four that was uh, for £2.25 from Morrison's. Oh, you've been done. I was the same, and we went to Tesco's, and they were two pound twenty-five. So that was uh, the the first shock, uh, as in the I'm sure the quality of these products do not live up to their price point. But yeah, I I, I approached it with an open mind. I came back, I ate one just about an hour before this podcast, and I was more than disappointed. So despite just let's get this clear, despite your very low expectations of this product going into the taste test. You were still, nonetheless, very disappointed in them. I approached it with an open mind still, because I'll be very honest. I, I still eat dairy cheese. We've got dairy triangles in the free, in the fridge, so they do have something going for them. And I found the cheese was. I just didn't find it pleasant to eat. Well, pre- presumably it's the same as the, the it is dairy cheese. No, it's not the same as the triangles. This seems to be more like a primula squeezy cheese where the dearly triangles is like a white it's, it's still soft but it's it's a milder cheese yeah I, no, I agree with that it's more robust I'd say as well it holds its shape a lot I've seen that the, yeah maybe very slightly it, it reminded me of primula squeezy cheese but I approached it with an open mind the corn snacks were good but it, it was not my cup of tea because when you get to the end of it you have to dip your half your fingers end up getting dipped in the cheese and Hold on, we'll come to that in a minute. This, that's yeah, it's COVID. It's all the COVID as well. You come into the supermarket, you can't eat your dairy dunker straight away. What you've been washing them? <laughs> well, no, because you have to wash your hands after the supermarket. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, the advice. The advice is <laughs> wash your hands before handling any foods. Dan, your thoughts? I got mine much like Neil. I got mine today, and I got the the large tubes. The season large tubes. And I also got the nachos because I thought fancy trying something a little bit different and overpriced. Same price as Neil's. So clearly we got it on a bad day. I mean, I wouldn't mind paying that for a variety pack of the exact same one. I'm. And it was all right. It was nothing special. It was just some type of processed creamed cheese that, on the surface, wasn't particularly didn't didn't stick particularly well to the 
the objects that were meant to be inserted in. But once you get past that surface, it seems to there's a bit more there's a bit more sticking quality. And um, yeah, I mean the natural ones weren't particularly good. I mean the, the pieces of natural were maybe each side was a centimeter, a centimeter and a half. Well, no, maybe not that small. Maybe like an inch by inch by inch. So what well, they weren't that great, and they were broken. You know, there's quite a few broken pieces in there. But the, the tubes were fine. They were they were nice enough. They held they held up under the under the pressure when I pushed into that squeezy cheese. But I wouldn't get them again. I wouldn't go out of the way to get them. I'd prefer to get proper cheese. I prefer to pay less money for a decent cheese than pay that much money for rubbish cheese. So let's be clear. You can buy you can buy a block of cheese for the same price as four daily dunkers. I I can get some like some brie or some you know a nice blue cheese or something like that out of any reputable supermarket. I do have a question for you, Gregor. Yep. Do you do you think the recipe has changed? Do I think the recipe has changed? I would not know. Not a great deal, I wouldn't have said. I mean, it's still got a similar consistency, and it's still got that vague cheese flavour, so I'd say... <laughs> My fiancé, who is a childhood... A childhood fan of them, and once I brought them th- home, she was elated, let's say, <laughs> and said to try them. And she reckons there's a much less salt in them. Oh, well, that would make sense. Well, I came into it under the impression that I didn't like them. And then when I discussed it with somebody, they said that apparently when I was younger, I used to enjoy Dairy Lee triangles on my sandwiches when I used to go to school. So apparently I do have a history with Dairy Lee, but not necessarily with the Dunker. Well, it's good to get your thoughts. Uh, I'll I'll give a brief overview of mine. I'm a I'm a fan or a nice nice small snack when you want a little bit of change from a packet of crisps. They're a bit dearer than knickknacks, as you point out, but I don't know what it, I can't remember paying that much. So I must only pick them up on deal because I don't think I paid over two pound for four. That'd be crazy. Can I make a suggestion then? What? The next time you actually want to do a food, make sure the thing's on offer. Well, I mean, it's, it's only an extra pound, and for the listeners appreciate us doing this for them. Well, it's an extra two pound because you made us get two different types, so we had to get two different variety packs. <laughs> I didn't make you. How? How did we get two different types? I only got the one. You said you said try two. That was just a, a option option I gave you. I wasn't. I wasn't even aware that there was two more than two. I got the I got the I got the default chive ones, but I should have went for the bugles. I, I I was tempted. Well, the bugles, the bugles bring their own problems, but we'll go into the problems just now. F- n- number one is this is this is a kind of first few times you eat them problem. After that, it becomes second nature. But trying to divvy up the amount of cheese you get equally on each stick that you're going to eat because you dip it once, you eat half the stick, and you dip it again. So you've got maybe 14 half sticks that you're going to dip in. So you need to know this is a problem because you you can kind of calibrate as you go along and adjust your strategy. But first few dips aren't important, but once you get about halfway through, you know where you stand in terms of how much cheese you've got left and how much cheese you need to put on the remaining dunkers. So how did you find that? Did you find there was a lot of cheese left or there wasn't enough cheese? Uh, I'll be honest, I did, it, I did it quite well. And the last stick I actually enjoyed on its own without the cheese on it. Well, I, I found I found with the with the, with the nachos they were no use whatsoever for getting cheese on. You need something with a bit more surface area or something you can at least. It didn't pick it up particularly well, but the tubes were definitely far more successful. 
some yeah corn cylinder tends to be more useful yeah it's got the rough edges as well but the bugles I can imagine a nightmare because you just you just skip it with a couple of bugles cheese is gone depends how much of an animal you are oh yeah but I, I don't think I've ever eaten a cheeseless dunker actually when you said that there Neil I think yeah always typically erred on the side of more cheese on the few dunkers I do have remaining but I mean for the last two years I'd say I pride myself on being able to I've, I've not done any experiments but I reckon if you were to weigh each of the 14, 16 dunkers half dunkers they would be within a small margin of error they'd be almost identical in terms of the, the amount of cheese on them well I would I would challenge you on that statement about you not you know doing a proper study on it because I firmly believe that if we were to read your diary there would be a daily a daily update on your daily dunk intake and the ratio of dunker dunker to dip well I've not had one in about a week if I had any in the house I would have done it this morning but as it happens I didn't have any in can I ask how often do you eat these? Uh, inf- infrequently. I'd say I go through... I mean, it comes in bursts when they're on deal, obviously. So if you get maybe two packs of four when they're on deal in a two-week period, and then it could go a couple of months without any. So I'd say you probably eat at the very most at a rate of one a week when you average it out. I'd say maybe one a fortnight. These are my, this is my first one for about six months. This is my first one for about six years. Sixteen years. <laughs> average out one a week you're an absolute animal it also comes down to preference of what your regular snack is because my my regular snacks probably even more off the cuff my regular snacks pork scratchings (laughs) that's a surprise you're doing yourself a favor if you switch to daily dunkers in if i need a snack i'll i'll head straight towards the multi-pack of pork scratchings or towards maybe biltong i've got a supply of biltong as well and that'll be mine i don't really eat that many crisps Unless it's a nibble before a meal. Well, I don't even know what my snack would be. I, I like, well, you can see by the size of me, I like quite a lot of things. But um, I, I don't know what my, my default snack would be. I'm more of a sweet type of person. Savouries, I usually can't eat savoury unless I have something sweet as well, because I find savoury just a bit overpowering sometimes. Moving on to the second problem then. Neil's already raised this. So I'd say the exception to that, all those half dunkers being identical, would be that last dunker. Because you've got the problem of when you have the half stick at the end, the depth of the container is only about a half stick in length. So you're really struggling. And it's not great for scraping either. It's not a good shape for scraping it off the bottom, is the dunker. So how do you think that could be remedied? How do you think that... Because that leaves you on a, a poor note, I think, because the whole experience has been great up to that point. And all of a sudden, you've got like an index finger cake and soft cheese. I would probably recommend Lee to reshape, to not have a cup, maybe almost have a removable insert as the barrier between the corn snack and the squeezy cheese. Okay. Yeah, so a removable insert, so it becomes part of the pot. I know, but you've still got this, I've, I've just thought of an idea, but if you were to do that, then the removable insert, insert would just be the same depth as it would be if it were actually connected to the pot. Yes, but you've got the whole pot to deal with that instead of a tiny cup. It gets around the problem marginally, but what's your idea? So I legitimately just thought of this because I've been thinking about this all week as well. But you could have on the pot, I mean it's difficult to describe in words, but I'm actioning out here. You could have on the pot one of the longer sides on the little cup that contains the cheese. There could be drawbridge effect 
So once you pull off the top foil, then you're then able to pull down the little drawbridge. And so it widens the entrance to the pot and it goes on its side slightly, in which case you're not, the opening becomes a lot bigger. It's still the same depth, the opening becomes a lot bigger so your fingers aren't as liable to touch the sides and uh, get covered in soft cheese. Or they could go to the McDonald's paper ketchup tray approach. Yeah, but how do you package that? I can imagine it'll be an automation nightmare to machine that. Yeah, as part of a contained package, yeah. But yeah, no, I, th- I, I think that would work. I mean, it only requires two extra bits of plastic and it would increase the usability to an untold level, really. But I would say for the cost for that to go into production would be absolutely ridiculous because the, all their machines would have to be redone that make these plastic pots. Yeah, because yeah, it is just a mould at the moment. Single mould and a foil, foils melted onto it, that's it. A standard, standard mould. Nothing's. I mean, I, I'm quite a fan of that. Have you seen that? Is it inside the factory? Yeah. Um, and that that has, you know, you see them go around and they actually see the things and I don't say nine times out of ten, but a fair, a fair proportion of the time they will say, say that this machinery was designed especially for the purpose of this. So it's like Neil says, you'd have to you have to design something especially for the purpose, which for a company like Kraft is being expensive it endeavor but they could afford it i would imagine they could afford it but it goes against their entire business model about producing efficiency and cost cutting. craft is also struggling at the moment had difficulties over the last few years with new ceo and decline in well, decline in profits i'm sure they're actually operating at a loss at the moment because they've stuck to this they've not went on to the whole health food kick as quick as everybody else it should be said that this isn't this is no longer Craft. This is Mondelith International Incorporated. Right, so I think we, we think we can wrap up there. Do you want me to take an action on that then? Uh, do you want me to conduct that experiment and come back come back with results? What's the experiment? It'll weighing out my dearly dunkers. Yes. Yeah, go for it. Okay, I'll report back next week then. You just want any excuse to eat them. That's your problem. <laughs> I'll get a four in for hopefully they're on deal. Don't know, don't fancy paying two pound twenty for four. Don't go to Morrison's or Tesco anyway. So we've got the board games next. Yes, we do. Uh, so we've got Neil with us this week going to give a little intro on Trivial's Pursuit. Right, so I'm going to cover this week's board games. It's uh, known as Trivial Pursuit. It's one of the most sold board games throughout the UK. It has been for decades. Uh, I remember as a child, my my first experiences of the game were playing with family and this would be a 1970s to 1980s version of the game. We'll break it down start with the way the board game is played is it's split up into six categories of questioning as geography, entertainment, history, arts and literature, science and nature and sport. So how you play is each player is given a small marker with six different segments in it and Throughout the game, you roll the dice and land on different colours. And each colour relates to a category. So six colours, six categories. And once you land in that category, you get a question. And if you get the question right, you get a segment. And if you get the question wrong, you hand it over to the next player. So by nature in this game, it's not going to be that easy. Because the aim of the game is you're not going to get six questions right straight away. But as a a youth, when I first played, uh, this game was near impossible. 
And as I've grown older, the original classic game has always been 1970s, 1980s, which is still a still a subject. Being born in the 90s is still a subject I struggle with. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it came out in the 80s. No, there's 1950s versions. Yeah, I know, but I think it was released in the, like the 80s. I think I think they've backdated the questions for the 1950s. I don't think so. I'm almost positive. It may have been 79. 1979. That's what I said. I said if anything, it was 79. December the 15th, 1979. <laughs> so let's get this clear. It was in the 70s. <laughs> Absolutely categorical. There were zero questions about the 80s in this in the original release. Yeah, but I'm talking about my experience as a youth, so it would have been an 80s release. Yeah. So as time went, as time has went on, there's been different versions of the game, and I've played all different versions of the game, and still is still a very challenging game. Can I interject? You can't have played all different versions of the game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Neil, yeah. <laughs> all the games. <laughs> I've played many different versions of the game. I've just bought one recently, but I've not yet played it. What one? It was the 2000s one. The new take on the classic that was brought out on the 15th of December 1979. Right. But, yeah, I think it's a, it's definitely a family game. It's a full family and friends game. It's It's fun to play. It definitely separates the strong from the weak in general knowledge, let's say that. There's no skill to the game, no strategy, it's just simply answer the questions. So it's 100% down to your general knowledge and in some cases down to the luck of the questions. And and also the dice roll, though. You need to land on the questions. And the dice roll, you're, yeah. Everyone's going to have preferred categories as well. And no one's excluded from the game, as Gregor's point was from Monopoly. No one's excluded from the game. Everyone's always got a fighting chance and your only hope as if you're behind, as the person in front of you gets the next question wrong. Or doesn't roll on the category they need. Or just, yeah. Well, they would, in that situation, they would get the kind of get it wrong. I know, but if you, yeah, so say if, you, say if you're on five, then you've only got one in six chance getting asked even the, the remaining piece of the pie that you need. Yeah, that's also true. But in my experience of the game, it's probably about a 25% chance of actually answering the question successfully. Unless you know the answer. You've got 25% chance of knowing the answer. That'll vary by individuals, though. Obviously, yeah. I mean, me, I'll probably be about 15%. Higher IQ individuals will probably be about 50%. There could be a 100%. There could be a 100% chance of answering the question. Definitely not. Unless you wrote the game. If No, if you get the question, if you get a particular... I mean, it depends on the individual. But if you get a question that, for example, what date was the Battle of Waterloo... Some people, you'd need the four options. Some people would be able to answer it straight away. So it's like you say about IQ. Some people, it's a 100% chance of answering a particular question. There's not four options in Trivial Pursuit. No, you don't get options. Oh, even better. What I'm saying is the difficulty of the questions are very high. It's very hard for someone to know that much about a subject to answer every question right every time. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It is a very difficult trivia game. Oh, yeah, yeah, it can be, yeah. And it is the quintessential trivia game as well, I think. And I guess that's the point of the game. There's The point of the game is it's meant to be challenging because you don't want someone to be able to answer every single question because that would make it impossible for the other players. 
what, what, what's your thoughts on it, Neil? What, do you want to jump straight to a rating for it, or do you want to... A rating, I... I mean, I'll be honest, I'm not that great at general knowledge. Never have been. I'm, I'm hoping I will be in my older years, but... You stick with us. Uh, I'm going to give it a, a 3.5 out of 5. Right, and what what did you give Catan again? I gave it a 3. I like the... I find there's more fun and family and friends it's more it's more fun to play because it's obviously and it's it's mentally challenging it's it's seeing what you know as well which is fun dan as as you both know and as anybody who's ever played anything moderately general knowledge related would be trivial pursuit of pub quiz a family quiz as we've been doing i am acutely competitive i am probably one of the least sportingly competitive people i know when it comes to anything that requires the application of of the brain, such as so like Trivial Pursuit, I'm very competitive. So I I love Trivial Pursuit. I love the challenge. I love the I love the variation of questions. I love the notion of you know how if you let's say you got like a history question, and then your next turn you got a history question, and you know there's that there's the, the problem that you may get the same the same category again. But no, I mean. Like we've been doing family quizzes, and I and I've done other quizzes as well throughout lockdown and the time coming out of lockdown. And for me, it's I don't say it's what I'm good at, but it's what I prefer. You know, if you talk like whether it be if it's you've got a choice between sporting or scholastic, I'll choose scholastic. I'll choose some of that. Uh, it's a bit more cerebral than than active. I think that's just that's just me. That's like I I rate it very highly. Like I, I'll give it. I don't believe in giving it five out of five. I'll give it. 4.5 out of 5 because obviously there's there's the frustration that comes with you know if you get a round and you got the same rounds again again and again and again so that it can be a bit sticky that way I suppose well I could say then Gregor what, what's your opinions on the on the game it's my opinions much like you Dan I really enjoy trivia contests pub quizzes and general quizzes and so on moderately good at them uh, but I just I don't know why it's odd isn't it why you'd enjoy something like that. But yeah, maybe it is competitiveness. I don't know. But even then, I'm not overly fussed on winning. Maybe that's just my old age, older age. <laughs> well, may, may I get to that point? Because I find that when it comes to these things, I become increasingly competitive. If somebody asks me a question, I need to know the answer to it. Or if there's a discussion about something, I need to know the answer to it. So it's, you know, I'm driven by information and like my wife will will attest to the fact that on occasions we've had conversations about things and she goes how on earth could you possibly know that because i need to know for no other reason it's yeah you know it's, it's there's something going on there which makes which drives me on and it's a great pleasure I say like if we're doing a quiz and we get at, and there's i get a, a wrong question i need to know the answer i try and remember the answers I think the main problems, despite me really enjoying trivia and quizzes and so on, the main problems I find with Trivial Pursuit are complete randomness in the dice rolling. As I say, if you're if you're sitting on five pieces, you've got on average a one in six chance of rolling the number you need to land on the space that you need for your remaining piece. So you could be, I mean, one in six is quite low in the sense that if you're playing with five other people, it could need to go round the board. 12 times with, without a great degree of infrequency 12 times before you ran, get the number you need of course if you answer the question right you get more than one roll per per turn but that can be frustrating 
I also think another problem with it is it completely excludes someone that doesn't enjoy trivia to the extent that I don't think other trivia games do. Because as you say, it's dice rolling and answering trivia questions, and they are pretty much just typical pub quiz questions. So you can have educated guesses, but more often than not, it's do you know the answer to this question? Yeah, yeah. It's it's like for example, we've we've collectively been doing quizzes as a family, the three of us with our respected other halves, and with your mum and dad as well, and with with your auntie and with family from all over the world. And, you know, there are times, like, for example, the other day when we had the quiz and there was one and I was totally stuck on the question and then it turned out it was multiple choice. And the moment it was multiple choice, I was fine. I knew the answer because uh, I couldn't remember the answer off the top of my head. But once, I, you know, once the multiple choice was there, I was like, oh, I know the answer to that. So, yeah, I think with Trivial Pursuit, it can be trickier because you need to just know the, the straightforward answer to it. And so, so for those reasons, because I think other trivia games do it quite well in terms of including people that aren't necessarily good at trivia. Like, take that Wits and Wagers that we played at Christmas, where we were split into teams and no one, there were, the questions were structured in such a way that very few people would know the exact answer to these questions. Yet you could make some sort of approximation based on your, your knowledge. Like, how long is the M6, for instance? Like someone's very unlikely to know the precise length of the M6, but they can gauge it based on their knowledge of where it runs from and to. Absolutely. And so, and then what else made that good was then you could then gain points by trying to predict who would be the closest to the answer. And so, if you think someone over someone has better knowledge than you of a particular subject, you could go with them. And if they get it right, then you also get points, which I thought think is really good. Whereas Trivial Pursuit is just like I say. In most groups of friends and family, you're going to have one person that is just, or one or two people that are just better than other people at these sorts of trivia games. And so it, com- it completely takes away from the whole experience for the other people playing the game, because they know they're not playing, they're just doing it to kind of make the person that is good at these sorts of games happy, <laughs> because they know they've got no chance of winning. But I think as well, from our experience, we know that we've done we've done games where... <laughs> People who like to think that they go at these games <laughs> get a chance, and invariably it always ends in bloodshed. <laughs> Near enough. I think it's just you know we the problem with intellectual pursuits such as Trivial Pursuit is that you can get people who play it and they think that they they think that they know stuff, and then you know it can be a bit more demoralizing. Like for example, if someone was to say to me, "I want you to run hundred meter dash or the five hundred meter dash," I'd be like. Oh, maybe a hundred meters, but I don't think I do particularly well. And five hundred meters, I haven't really got a chance. But when it comes to cognitive pursuits such as trivial pursuits, I think people people can be a bit more brash about it. So you can bring out the worst in people sometimes. It's interesting you say that because it, I I think particularly trivial pursuit is not necessarily. I mean, it says it in the title, but it's not necessarily a cognitive or intellectual pursuit because all you are doing is regurgitating facts. And so, what? Where's the? I mean, there's something to be said for the ability to recall that sort of information. But I mean, what? I don't want to go too deep in this topic. But that is—is is that true intelligence being able to regurgitate facts, or is it be able to use that knowledge? But I mean, sorry, I just say for, for for those reasons, I'd probably put it at a one st- one star, maybe one. I go with one and a half, maybe. And that's a one. That's purely down to the fact that I enjoy these 
uh, trivia type contests. It, for the game itself, uh, about one a bit, one star at best, but I'd probably put it at one and a half just because I do quite enjoy, like I say, trivia trivia quizzes. Very very harsh. I don't think so. No, no, that's 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 fair. I think it, it's fair. As, you know, they, they, it's an art. It's an artificial. There's a, there's an artificial nature to it, and it doesn't necessarily represent. It, it, it's a bit of fun for the family, which is fine if you're a family that isn't competitive. <laughs> but if you're in a family that is competitive, I'd say it's better if you are competitive. It totally depends what type of competitive you are, doesn't it? Right. So I think we can sum that up then. So one and a half. Four and a half and three, or three and a half. Neil, was it? Three and a half for me. Yeah. So <laughs> wide wide range of opinions there. Absolutely. Uh, we'll be back next week with a more modern board game. Well, thanks for that, Neil. Uh, next, we've got Dan up with his topic this week, and that is sport during the COVID nineteen pandemic. give us an intro done yeah absolutely so i would like to talk to you a bit about the circumstances which are surrounding sport as in professional sport and its movements towards returning from lockdown or the measures that they're taking with regards to phased return and the implementation of sporting events and really i want to focus on football i want to look at rugby it's a mixture of rugby union and rugby league so i suppose to start with i mean we can go i was thinking we can go through each section and if we have any opinions to share them as we go along rather than go me going through everything and then having to backpedal and go back on things and um, if that works for you guys yeah so we can go through each sport individually yeah so for example i want to start with football so as we all know like like the country at, at large Football was shut down on the British Isles, as it was in virtually every other country around the world, apart from countries such as Belarus and Burundi, who continue to play throughout. They haven't had a break, like most most other football federations have taken. I wanted to look at sort of the attitudes and the approaches that football teams have taken with regards to the lockdown. So, as we know, lockdown started on the twenty third Monday, the twenty third of March. And with that meant the closure of of leagues, the suspension of leagues. Either they were temporary or eventually it came to a point where they had to totally finish the season and then come up with a way to resolve relegations and promotions and champions if, if, if necessary. So start with Scottish football. As we know, Scottish football was suspended. And as a result of that, they had to come up with a resolution with regards to the league. So for Scottish football, the resolution was that all leagues were finished and the final placings were based on the average of the game so far and the estimated total points that they would have gained by the end of the season. So, for example, in the Scottish Premier League, the only change was for St. Johnston and St. Johnston moved up to sixth and I forget who was, I think it was Hamilton dropped down to seventh. Uh, the rest of the leagues were more more or less finished as they were. 
And once everything ended and we weren't sure what the next steps were, that they started bringing the, the, the British government brought in the furlough scheme and Scottish teams responded. So teams such as Hearts, Dundee United, Montrose and Kilmarnock all took advantage of the furlough scheme, which as anybody who's aware of Scottish football, it's a fair shout because there isn't a lot of money in Scottish football. The way that the leagues are structured and the way that the teams are run is indicative of a league where there isn't a lot of money invested in it from outside sources, the same way that you get in in English football or French, Italian, Spanish, places like that. But what I found very interesting was when I was looking this up was that Celtic took advantage of the furlough scheme. They furloughed a number of their staff. We're not talking, you know, football managers, more management team, coaching staff. We're talking about everyone who sort of runs in the background of the club. That super, you know, runs all the all the very important parts of the business. And that Celtic furloughed staff at the full eighty percent, which the government was prepared to pay, and Celtic topped it up to twenty percent. And I find that very interesting because if you look at a team like Celtic where there is a vast, for, for the Scottish football, there's a vast sum of money in Celtic. They've made a lot of money off players that they've sold previously, such as when they sold Van Dijk to Liverpool. And, I mean, second, secondary to Celtic, you're talking Rangers, who are not as, I don't think they're as financially strong as Celtic are. Then Celtic are run away when it comes to finances. Neil? Uh, yeah, Rangers are not in good financial shape, but Celtic are. But I think that's. T- are, are you are you saying it's a bad thing that they put them on furlough? They shouldn't have done that. Well, I'm just curious as to a team which its supporters have claimed, and people who are closely associated with the club, such as ex-players, have claimed that Celtic are a team that could be competing in the English Premier League. So if there's a team like that, it must have the financial backing. And the financial clout that must have enabled it to pay for its staff more than more than eighty percent, surely more than eighty percent than what they were furloughed. Um, I'd say that's damage limitation, though. Uh, I mean, yeah, what, what, why is that even relevant? So the furlough scheme is only available for football teams and employers and restaurants that can't afford, that don't have the the cash surplus to pay. That, that why they've they've had the benefit of managing their business well, managing their football team well, that they have had this cash surplus. So why should they be not take advantage? And Celtic have just played Celtic have just played four point five million pounds for a new goalkeeper. Yeah, that's their business. Well, yeah, what's your what's your point here though? Like I'm not I'm not going after Scottish football, but Scottish football is the first port of call because that's where we are. I, I think it's completely irrelevant. If you look at I don't know, a high street chain of restaurants and they've made an investment purchase. They've put staff on the furlough scheme because they weren't able to work during the pandemic and they made an investment decision during that time to put some, to to use some of their capital to make a purchase of buildings or plant or whatever it may be. I mean, that's exactly the same situation. Uh, but yet... I describe that as reckless. Maybe they thought, they thought that was the best use of their money at that time. They should be furloughing. They're not going to just pay people for doing... Like, say, for example, Manchester Airport, where I am, they're, they do rotation of staff. So, obviously, they're on a skeleton staff, but what they do is they rotate new staff. The staff come in and out of furlough every six weeks for two weeks, and they come in and out. 
I mean, yeah, they can afford to, but I mean, these this, these are companies that are going to be heavily hit by here. There's damage limitation on their part. But as of today, Scottish football has returned. Premier League started today. I'm surprised you don't know, Neil, being a season ticket holder. The game is that I'm interested in is at half past four Sunday afternoon. So I will be watching that. But yeah, I bought a season ticket last week and it was a bold move considering the amount of money it costs and the fact that Scottish football's got no dates for supporters to be invited back into the stands. Uh, they say there's speculation that it's going to be October, but that is only speculation at the moment. There's nothing confirmed. But the team have promised that they will make your season ticket worth it. I don't know if that's going to be through a free TV subscription or... I know they do offer a subscription service for TV already, but maybe they'll further that. There was, sorry, there was a statement made uh, with regards by the Scottish Football Association that if any Scottish Premier League teams wish to sell the rights to their football matches to be televised or to be shown by any company, they were welcome to do so independently. Well, that's very good information. I would have said it means there's no there's no additional support from the SFA with trying to get more more matches on uh, Sky or BT, BBC, Alpa might be interested. So you know, I'll I'll watch that with with great interest because I'll understand what they're talking about. I know I know other sports have invited. I was watching the the Polish Speedway three weeks ago. It was actually on Father's Day, and they were down. To, they were had twenty five percent of the stands full. I just I use Celtic as an example because I think Celtic are held up higher than the rest sometimes. I think it's important that teams that are held up with a higher degree than others deserve maybe disproportionate disproportionate praise warrants disproportionate scrutiny. I don't know what there is to scrutinise here, though. Honestly, I do not get the point because, like I say, it's business. The government did not make the furlough scheme conditional on you're not allowed to conduct any business operations. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the country's best interest, it's in, in each individual country's best interest to continue on with business as much as they could during those times. And the fact, the only reason the furlough scheme was brought in was to protect those that couldn't work during those times, which is what a lot of the Celtic staff couldn't do. But therefore, like, so if we were to take this, move the context south of Hadrian's Wall and Bournemouth, they followed 50. Liverpool followed 200. Spurs followed 550. And Newcastle followed the majority of their staff, including recruitment, academy, foundation, and ground staff. Now, Bournemouth, Liverpool, and Spurs responded to mounting criticism in regards to the financial stability and the financial clout that they possess by withdrawing themselves from the furlough scheme. However, Newcastle maintained it, and they started reintroducing staff on the 15th of May. Now, are you therefore saying that Bournemouth, Liverpool, Spurs, and Newcastle were all right to use the furlough scheme? Again, again, I don't know what I, I don't know what the controversy is here. You, the the biz, you, if you if you're a business and you're giving you're getting given free money. To up to keep your business in some sort of idle point during this pandemic, then you would. I, I also don't see the argument. If you think at the time, Celtic have been told you're not playing any more games this season. We do not know when people when people are going to be coming into your stadiums again. They can't possibly predict what their future cash flow is going to be for this this season that's now started. But but you make it sound as though they have nothing in the bank. 
yeah, but they've got loads in the bank. But that's not the point. They need that in the bank. So do the players. Yeah, I know. They need that as a contingency to help them through this season, which they're not going to get any stadium revenues through on. So are they are they furloughing? They're not furloughing the players. They're furloughing the staff. They're not furloughing players. Yes, they're they're furloughing the people who are earning in a year as much as some of the players are earning in a month. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If the players are earning such vast, why don't they take a cut? Why didn't they take a cut? Why weren't they made to take a cut? Ah, uh, yeah, I agree with that. That's a completely separate argument. That's 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 about how much football players are getting paid. It's intertwined. It is because if you can afford to pay this vast sum of money towards footballers, then you should be able to put in place that you can afford to pay these. I mean, it's only granted with hindsight we can say it's been four or five months. But they, exactly, they didn't know. They they thought it might have been a year, two years. They had no idea how long it would be, and they still don't know. Which means they don't know. They do know. They know that Scottish football is stud. Yeah, but they don't know when pe- people are going to be employed at, at the full rate that they were employed. Because the, sta- the stadiums aren't at full capacity, so that takes away a lot of jobs that were required when fans were coming in. Arsenal agreed that all their players and the coaching staff should take a 12.5% pay cut. Brighton agreed to a pay cut. Sheffield United, Southampton and Watford all agreed to defer payments to enable the clubs to pay the staff who were not not players or in the coaching management side of things to continue to be paid by the club. That That's on the players then, that's not on the club. The, and even the players. The players have, prior to this, agreed a contract in which they will be paid a certain amount of money. And they're entitled to be paid that amount of money insofar as they can do their job. And so... These people have then made financial decisions based on the amount of income they have. And so a 12.5% pay cut, although it is a vast sum of money, might financially hurt these people who are not prepared for it. So at a personal level, I, I can understand. Again, it comes it comes back to how much footballers are paid, which is, I think, a completely separate conversation to this, this one that we're having. I think it leads to the conversation. I, I think that's clearly a problem, how much footballers are paid but this was a conversation that had to happen many years ago and still continues to happen the fact that the staff of big clubs or have taken uh, t- participated in the furlough scheme that's a consequence and th- th- in fact it's not even a consequence because that's just what they've been valued economically at these players So it's- I didn't realise this was going to be a furlough chat well it's not a furlough chat but okay so Neil were you furloughed? Uh, no but I could have been I could have furloughed myself. Gregor, you weren't furloughed. I wasn't furloughed. We're very lucky because we can talk about this in a in an abstract kind of way, talking about the others who were furloughed. How how lucky we are. But no, so looking at rugby then, and I mean, what led me with, with the rugby thought, this is actually what started me thinking about this whole thing, was the Toronto Wolfpack who are in the Super League. On the 20th of July they said that they were going to have to withdraw from the current season of Super League. And they did so because of the overwhelming financial challenges which surrounded their participation. Because obviously if they're from Toronto, they're from Canada, and they need to be able to travel backwards and forwards and having a a cash flow to enable them to go. And as, as we know, the finances in rugby are nothing compared to the finances in football. I mean, any. I think most sports, apart from unless you go to America where you get basketball and American football and baseball where the money is more comparative. But other than that, I think it's very hard to find parity with, with football. So 
So for them, they said the overwhelming financial challenges meant that they would have to withdraw and that they hoped to be back next season. So that this sort of appeared out of the blue. And the the RFL and the SLE, nobody said anything immediately. However, they did follow up on the evening of the 20th of July that they said that there would be no relegation this season from the leagues, which meant that, in theory, Toronto would be safe and that the seasons would just end without any relegation. I mean, for that, with regards to Super League, but if you look at Super Rugby in the Southern Hemisphere, there was a, a similar problem which was experienced by the Jaguaris from Argentina, who the players were told that as a result of the current circumstances to look elsewhere for places to play, uh, they wouldn't be able to play. And the way that they've done the Super Rugby in the Southern Hemisphere is that they've broken it up into countries. So all the South African teams play each other, all the New Zealand teams, all the Australia teams play each other. But for the Jaguaris stuck in Argentina, there, there was nowhere for them to go. There was the proposal that they would play in the South African portion. However, that was wiped off. But that's not to suggest that other teams haven't been affected. Australian teams have had a 60% pay cut, or they've been told if they refuse to take the pay cut, their contracts would be terminated. And at the Queensland Reds, they had three players who were had their contracts terminated because they refused to take a pay cut. New Zealand have said that 50% of their players will have to take a pay cut. That's Rugby Union and Rugby League. And in South, the South African Rugby Federation said that there would be a 25% pay cut for all players. Also, the RFU said that there, there could be a 25% layoff of all workforce. And if anyone's still listening. You, you know what? You get away with Derry Lee Dunkers. <laughs> it had the audience on the edge of their seats. <laughs> I'm, I am interested in that, though. What would you like us to paint on then, Dan? It, it's, I, love, I love sport. I care very strongly about sport. And even though, as I've already stated, I'm not the most athletic, I think it's really important that, that there are sports and that there are activities and clubs for people to support. Because, as was pointed out by the, the British government, that things such as recreation and sporting activities are really important. It was also pointed out by the Scottish government that these things are really important. Sporting activities are really important to being able to go out and play tennis, to play football, non-contact. You know, it's th- there's a situation where we're going to come back. I'm scared that we're going to come out of lockdown. And you know what? I'm so sick to the back teeth of people saying, oh, it's the new normal. It's the new normal. It's not a new normal. It's just a different set of circumstances. And these circumstances, for some people, are going to be a lot better for other others. And there are people out there who are who are seriously struggling financially with regards to their current circumstances. And they're turning around to their, their local sports team and either A, seeing them struggling seriously financially, or seeing the people who work for them struggling financially. And I'm a romantic in the thought that if you if you work for Celtic, if you work for Montrose, if you work for Liverpool or Newcastle, or if you work for the Jaguaris or the Queensland Reds, you care about the club that you work for. You don't work for it because it's just a job. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'd like to point out that I'm fairly certain you used the phrase new normal last week. I know. And I apologise then as well. And I will continue to apologise. Yeah. But uh, who who do you want 
who who are you saying that should step in? Is it the government, or are you saying it's at the club level that should be stepping in? It's club level. So what would the Jaguaris do then? They've not been supported by their league. What what would how could they how how can they continue to support their players with no cash flow? It's like any management scheme. If you imagine a club is at the bottom of the pecking order, there are so many other factors and so many other organisations. What's Super Rugby doing? I can totally understand the concerns with regards to uh, the Jaguaris going to South Africa because South Africa, based on current statistics, is having a pretty torrid time of it with regards to COVID. And there would obviously be concerns with regards to the movement backwards and forwards of the players. There are measures which can be put in place to try and mitigate those concerns, but nobody's tried. The Jaguaris, up until this point, have had, for them, a very good season. And it's very sad when a team that has a, is having a very good season has the season cut short. Success doesn't just breed finance. It also breeds brand value, and it breeds... Uh, an awareness around the world. I mean, it's crazy to think that we're able to talk about the Jaguaris and give them a bit of attention and to give them some much-needed coverage in our own little way. Yeah, I'm sure all our listeners will be able to support them in their own, their own way as well. But I, I completely agree with the sentiment in that local clubs and national clubs should be supported and particularly when you raise the example of the Jaguaris, because they've they are effectively the national team representing Argentina in the Southern Hemisphere League, which is a massive thing. And I'm not too familiar with the rugby in Argentina, but I can imagine that's something to strive for in terms of you're playing for your national team or you're playing for the Jaguaris representing Argentina against the the other uh, Southern Hem teams. So I completely agree with the the sentiment that it should be. It should be kept for the the sake of rugby in Argentina, but the solution to it is it's complex, isn't it? I mean, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what you want us to discuss about who, who's who's responsible for stepping in. Is it Jaguars look to be fairly powerless in the situation? So I don't think it's on them. Is it on the league to try to, as you say, bring teams together? I mean, it's a difficult balance and act that. Is it on the government to to support it? Celtic Football Club had. A reasonable grounds to apply for the world scheme because their ability to generate revenue was diminished by the fact that no one enters their stadiums and the fact that a lot of their late games were cancelled or however many games at the end of the season were cancelled whereas institutions such as say uh, certain financial services firms their business may not have been diminished as greatly as retail businesses nonetheless they have been diminished I think as well, though, it speaks volumes that clubs backpedaled. It sounds like it was after a back, like a public backlash. So whether that's on principle or for image, the sake of image. But I don't think Andy's disputing that these clubs could have paid their staff. And, and I don't. Th- but that's the thing. I'm sure some employers who have other employers who have participated in the furlough scheme could also have paid their staff, but they're not being shouted at. New big firms. I think it's fair to say that we're in danger of getting bogged down in this discussion. It's a really fascinating discussion, but I think our listeners would probably quite enjoy it if we moved on. Well, thanks for that, Dan. I think we'll move on to the top 10 this week, and that's with Neil, and he's chosen 
the top 10 cuisines. Take it away, Neil. Yeah, thank you, Gregor. I'm going to just bring everyone back down to earth after those two uh, interesting topics. <laughs> we had Dearly Dunkers and uh, how COVID has affected sports. But now we're going to go into something that I think everybody can relate to. I would personally, I think this is probably the most celebrated thing in the entire world, food. That along with religion, but I'm, I'm going to be in the top 10 cuisines this week. Food, probably the most celebrated thing in the world. Every, I don't know anybody that doesn't love food. It's Personally speaking, it's the thing I look forward to most during the working day. And when it gets to Monday, I'm still thinking about what I'm going to eat at the weekend. So food's quite a big part of my life. It's a very hard decision to come to 10 cuisines. Hundreds and hundreds to choose from throughout the entire world. But I've... Uh, painstakingly narrowed this down to 10 so um, here it goes I'm going to my top 7 and I'm going to go to you guys for the top 3 well you're 10 through 4, now you're top 7 yeah, alright here we go Okay, starting with number 10 we have Japanese, Japanese food known for being fresh healthy, high quality probably best known throughout the world for their sushi, but mainly my favourites would be sushi famous for also for the ramen Teppanyaki, which I had the first experience of a couple of weeks ago, which I really enjoyed. And also one of my favourites, katsu curry. Um, so I do enjoy it. The only problem with Japanese that I've got is every time I've been to a, re- a, re- a Japanese restaurant, I have went home and ate something else due to the, let's say the portion sizes. It's uh, not as satisfying as I would like it to be, as I'm used to in other cuisines. But uh, we'll move on to something much more hearty. Probably not the most, probably the mo- not the most tried one. Hungarian is uh, one of my favourite cuisines. Got that in ninth. Don't know if any of you guys have ever tried Hungarian foods. My personal favourite, the langos. Yeah, there's a Hungarian restaurant in Edinburgh. I've been a couple of times. It's nice. I usually go for the goulash. You get a half half loaf of bread as well with some, it's like a chili chutney comes with it. It was, it was really good, actually. Really delicious. Well, in my opinion, we've got the the big hitters. We've got, um, I would say, to Hungarians, the most famous one would be chicken paprikas, which is a sour cream chicken and pasta, kind of like a paprika sauce. Goulash, as you mentioned. It's a nice uh, Hungarian soup. And langos. I don't know if you guys have tried this. This is basically a, a very large, almost like a donut covered in sour cream and garlic and cheese oh phenomenal I had one at a market in winter uh, in London it was uh, absolutely delicious okay that's number 9 Hungarian so we move on to number 8 I've got Chinese food I don't feel like I've had the best exposure to Chinese food due to most of my exposures being through Chinese takeaways in Britain so but the ones I see as my favourites out here would be satays kind of peanut sauce Sweet and sour, um, prawn crackers and ribs. I have never visited the country of China. I can't. I can't truly say that this is going to be what I've had the real deal. I can't. I can't. I can't admit to it. It's not my favourite cuisine, mainly provided by takeaways. I have thoroughly enjoyed it, but you can. Can I interject for the first time? I think that's ever I've said that. Um, no, but I just want to say that the population of the UK, which is made up of people with Chinese descent is about a quarter of a million people, which I found to be a surprisingly low number 
for the massive influence that they have had on British cuisine and British culture. It's it's interesting the the, the sort of Chinese cuisine, isn't it? Because it's almost as if there's a Western Chinese cuisine that's been developed in uh, Britain and America and Western nations compared to, I mean, I'm the same as Neil, I've never been to China. But when you watch sort of cooking shows and things like that, people experiencing Chinese cuisine in China, it seems to be completely different and a lot more uh, varied, I'd say, as well. I think it was actually just added to my confirmation of this last weekend. I watched a um, cooking show, John Turodes, uh who's a very famous chef, travel the world, tasted cuisines from every continent, and he said he's never he'd never been served chips with Chinese food until he moved to the UK, which uh, speaks speaks volumes for our uh, Chinese cuisine here. So I, I take that with a pinch of salt. I'm assuming there's a lot of similarities, but I would have to visit the country of China to firm. I think we have, like a lot of countries, adapted and adopted cuisines which have come here to suit our own palates and to suit our own appetites. Uh, I think there's probably authentic Chinese restaurants over here now, though. Oh, definitely. In the cities there definitely is, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I would, I would say Chinese is huge in the UK, absolutely massive. I would probably say it's in the majority of people's top threes for takeaways. It's... Uh, it's one. It's definitely one of the go-to's, and it was me. Not not in recent years, but it certainly used to be. That was number eight. So dropping into number seven, I've gone with Spanish. Yeah, Mediterranean, a lot of fish, um, a lot of chicken, a lot of a lot of everything really. It's hearty foods. They've got a different style of eating in Spain than they do from over here. They eat a lot later. It's also tapas, small dishes, a lot of sharing as well. That's where you get the huge paella dishes. Where I've been to Spain, you can't get you cannot get a paella for one. Every restaurant's for two minimum. Yeah, huge tomato-based dishes. I mean, I've been to Valencia and had that's where a paella is from, and I believe that's served with rabbit and snails originally. Uh, and obviously chorizo, huge in the UK now as well. Absolutely delicious. Yeah, so when you think of Spanish food, you think of the sun, you think of the beach, uh, red wine and sharing, friends. Yeah, so that's why it's number seven. Thoroughly enjoy it. Number six is probably one of the restaurants I most frequent to, or I have in the past, is Thai food. It's generally yours towards salty, sweet, spicy. Get that a lot of the fish sauce they use in dishes. My top favourites would be the Pad Thai. Just obviously fish sauce and vegetables and uh, chicken and prawns if you want. Pink Tiger, which is a steak, uh, spicy marinade, spicy dressing. And also the world famous uh, Thai green and red curries. Spicy, uh, you'll find out from this list that I do love spicy food. Definitely a a regular on my uh, restaurant list. So we're hitting the top five. Uh, Another one of my favourites on the restaurant list is Greek restaurants. Uh, they've always been very simple, accessible, very reasonably priced and very filling. And it's right down my street, things like uh, grilled meats, Greek salads, f- very fresh, flatbreads. Also very Mediterranean, but more on the side of cheeses and dips. Never been to Greece myself, but been to plenty of Greek restaurants in the past. Uh, so, second big hitter in the top five... Number four 
I'm sure it'll be in your guys somewhere in the top list. Mexican food. Uh, Mexican food, very spicy. I would say quite. it can be quite exotic. You've got the classics that are known through the Western world. Quesadillas, chili, nachos and green pepper sauces. But things that are more native there, tamales, steamed wrap with uh, green chilies and, and meat. Uh, Mexican omelettes, in my opinion, the perfect breakfast. Very delicious, spicy as well, and a lot of, uh, definitely a lot of variety. So that brings me to my top three, but before I go into these, I'd like to consult uh, Gregor and Dan here on what they would think. I'm very interested in this, actually. Dan, what would you? what would your top three be? So my number three is going to be Indian. I'm really partial to an Indian. I never used to be so much, but since I've since I've known you guys, I think uh, my palate's definitely developed. Uh, I enjoy the spices, the aromatics, the variety of flavours. Uh, I think in Scotland as a whole, perhaps we don't have that many Indians to choose from. But uh, yeah, I really I just enjoy the the combination of flavours and what they play with. And you definitely cannot beat an Anne. No, you can't. I would disagree. The lack of choice. Yeah, I disagree with there's not many many Indians because here in the Lowlands there's nearly a town that goes without an Indian restaurant, at least within delivery distance, let alone like stumbling distance or walking distance. But I could possibly contest, but the Indian restaurants per capita is probably one of the highest in the world. Outside of India. <laughs> outside well, outside of India, I would say Scotland is one. Must be one of the highest in the world per capita for Indian restaurants. Certainly the UK, I would say. I think the UK is, on a whole, uh, uh, very high up in the list of consumers of curry. Indian curry. Indian re- Indian curries. Chicken tikka masala was its national dish one year, was it not? The UK's. The, I mean, the, what more needs to be said? But still, I think there's an abundance of Indian restaurants, and thankfully so, to be honest, because I'm a big fan. It's not made my top three, but I'm always a fan of uh, an Indian meal when I go out. No, my, so my number three is Thai. As Neil says, there's great options in Pad Thai, the red and green curries. My personal favourite, and this, this is a bit of a cheat because it's a bit of a hybrid Indian Thai cuisine, but it's the Masamam curry. It's got some ground spices, but blended with coconut milk. So it's got your typically Indian spices like uh, cumin and so on, but it's made in a Thai style curry with the coconut milk and the vegetables, potato, carrots, chicken and so on. So it's it's my favourite thing to eat when we go to a Thai restaurant. Yeah, something for everyone. So we're going to do yo-yo back and forward. Yeah, Dan, to you for number two. So my number two, um, I was quite torn on this, but for number two, I've gone for Italian. I love Italian. I love all types of food that comes out of Italy. Big fan of pasta, obviously pizza, but I really enjoy traditional Neapolitan. Seafood dishes, which they make, are exquisite. I enjoy cooking Italian as well, so I think that adds to my my, my love of it. And I can't remember a time when I haven't enjoyed a bolognese sauce, I haven't enjoyed, like I say, a pizza, and yeah, it comes in at number two for me. Not made my uh, list, but I do enjoy Italian. Oh, I thought it was crept in there, top three actually. Uh, my number two next. Now I've kind of copped out a bit here, so if you have a go at me, I've got a backup. I kind of more um, focused number two, but number two is American. I mean, it's so broad and so derived from other cuisines that you can barely call it cuisine. 
and it, because it is so far reaching. So if I were to hone in on a single aspect of what American culture has brought to the food world, it would have to be barbecue and it's sort of modern Western sense because I know barbecues existed since, well, you're just heating up meats over a fire. So as far back as people cooked meats, basically. But the whole sort of, not theatre, but the whole sort of everything that goes into barbecue, I really enjoy the the, the barbecue itself, line it up. Um, you've got the management of it as well. Uh, yeah, so barbecue, I mean, who doesn't like flame-cooked meats? And the variety is really good as well. I mean, despite it being limited to meat and a limited number of vegetables, you've got, you can slow cook it by smoking it over barbecue. Uh, you can quickly frame grilled steaks or burgers sausages, I mean I'm just going through different cuts of meat and meat derivations here but I, yeah, my number two barbecue Right, so I'm going to join Dan um, and his top three pick, Indian foods it's spicy it can be, can be spicy, it can be mild very interesting uh, very varied, it's actually probably the only cuisine that I'm happy to eat a fully vegetarian meal on I find it very hearty especially with the lentil dal, one of my favourites uh, obviously, the curry comes in every shape or form. Um, but the breads, the chapatis as well that come with it, and Bombay potatoes. So, yeah, there's a theatre to it. It's kind of a, yeah, it's a shared commonality between people to sit down and enjoy an Indian meal. I think certainly throughout Britain, it's just a part of our, just a part of our country now. There's the Balti, which is from Britain. There's the chicken tikka masala, which is also from Britain. It's uh, ingrained into our system now. I don't know anyone that doesn't like to enjoy quite an indulgent meal, but it can also it can also be be healthy. It's sometimes overlooked, um, but yeah, it's uh, number three on my list for a reason. I'll do my number two. Quite an odd one for a Brit- British person, but uh, French foods made it my number two. My, um, I'm sure that'll be a shock uh, to some people, but just purely on the basis of I've every time I've been to a French restaurant, I've always left blown away and that being in Britain and in France. Uh, mainly I, I, I enjoy very rich meals and it's perfect there. They've got, it's always high quality steaks, uh, duck confit, they've got very hearty stews, obviously very good for the red wine, also white. Very, very fine food and obviously that's where the Michelin stars originated from. It's, it's known as a high quality food and I've just been blown away by restaurants in the past that I've been to. Also very well known for their fresh bread and croissants and uh, special their cheeses. So Dan, you're next. So my number one cuisine is going to be Jewish. Jewish food. Uh, I love it. It's indulgent. It's hearty. It's filling. It just gives you a warm, happy feeling inside. Foods such as matzo ball soup, latkes, brisket bagels and even a bit of breaded fish a god of a fish and chips and breaded fish was brought over to the uk by jews who fled spain and portugal during the reconquista brilliant history to the food as well that goes with it and if you're prepared to put up with the obvious dietary requirements that come with it i highly recommend it is an absolute treat gregor have you got any experience with jewish food no but i do remember my RE teacher when I was at school, he always said, if you're ever on a long haul flight and you get the option of a pre like an in flight meal, always tick the box for kosher 
because it always comes a lot better, like it's always a lot better prepared than the the normal meal. So that's a tip for our listeners. Uh, well, well, actually, I've uh, on a weekend in Rome, wandering around the city, uh, we did stumble upon the Jewish quarter by accident, and we sat down. Uh, we didn't know it was the Jewish quarter, and Charlotte proceeded to order a coffee. It obviously came with no milk, but I ordered a kosher beer, and the, the beer was very tasty. Uh, yeah, that was my only experience as a coffee with soy milk and a kosher beer. Um, right, okay, we'll move to you, Gregor. What's your What's your number one? Neil's already said it, it was his number ten uh, Japanese. I think this is it's because I do watch a lot of kind of Japanese culture shows, so I, th- I think it's because I'm so familiar with the the cuisine. Why I'm so uh, I, I like it so much. I've been to a, f- a few Japanese restaurants, and I think it's. When I was thinking about this, I think I really enjoy Thai, and that had a good shot at number one. And the more I thought about it, the more I really appreciate the variety in Japanese food because you've got your sushi, sashimi, um, sort of rice and fish based dishes. But on top of that, you've got chicken karagi, which is like a deep fried chicken. I mean, who doesn't love that? You've got your gyozas, which are your sort of similar to the Chinese style dumplings that you get. I really believe there's something for everyone. Um, like the stereotype is a lot of rice and fish, but there's so much, so much else. And it's also katsu curry. Also, it's just fried chicken with with rice and a delicious sauce. So excellent food. That's my number one. And very, very good variety. Healthy as well. The only detriment is to the healthiness of it, I suppose, is the salt content that could be quite high with just the amount of sort of salty fish stock they use and the soy sauce. So. Uh, but apart from that, Japanese, number one. Have you been for teppanyaki before, Gregor? I've never been. There was a restaurant in Edinburgh, but I, I, I never made it. And then it changed to shisha bar, so um, I didn't make it before it closed down. I've, I've, seen it on, I've seen it on several television shows, and it looks really good in terms of a, not just a meal, but in terms of a whole night out. It's, yeah, well, I went for a lunch meal, but yeah, there's uh, even even then it's uh, it's entertainment. So this is going to top off my top ten. Be no shocks here, I don't think. Um, between the between the three of us, my number one is British. In compiling this top ten, I looked at what I enjoy, what I would generally cook myself, and what I would go out and source myself. And when I was growing up, every, my, my go-to was always fish and chips. Everywhere we went, it was fish and chips and fish and chips every time, which I still enjoy uh, to this day. Uh, I still have that maybe once every two weeks. But you've got the length and breadth of the country where you've got the Aberdeen Angus steak, the Aberdeen Angus cow, which is worldwide bread. My, uh, my home country is going to get priority here with the wonderful thing that is haggis, which uh, is, I guess... Even even slightly outside Scotland, a lot of people haven't had it. Uh, most people haven't had it. Uh, salmon. Scotland is known as to be the highest quality salmon throughout the world. Um, and we've also got the the balti and the chicken tikka masala going back to the Indian. The Indian culture that's come here, that's been produced from Britain. But you've got more general things eaten every week. Pies, roast dinner, Yorkshire pudding, which are eaten on a weekly basis. The roast dinners are staple every Sunday, but and also huge on their dessert desserts throughout Britain: trifles, bread and butter puddings, scones, cranachan, cranachan for the Scottish. Cranachan. Hold on, Neil. It's pronounced cranachan. <sighs> Whatever. <done. laughs> 
<laughs> and going back to going back to uh, one of our first topics, uh, one of the biggest producers of soup and consumers of soup. Yeah, and consumers of soup. Uh, so all rounds, Britain is a winner in my book. You'll it's always pleasing to the palate. Good choice. Not the healthiest though. Pro- probably, I mean, the French. Uh, cuisine itself probably isn't the healthiest with the butters and fats and things, but in terms of the French diet, it is quite healthy. Well, there we go. Uh, got quite got through quite a lot today. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, I'm Gregor again, and I'm Neil, and I'm Dan. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. And we're back with our new fact-checking segment at the end of every podcast where we'll each give a little review of what we thought of the podcast as well as picking up or clarifying any of the details that we may have um, may not have got quite right. We realise there is a school of thought in the podcasting world where facts are merely incidental to the podcasting game um, but we believe there's a, we should take a bit of responsibility well, on a a, a two-to-one majority of us um, b- believe that <laughs> this is several lists as well. Uh, so we'll each give a little review first of what we thought of the podcast. Um, if I, first of all, I'll give a bit of background on the recording of this most recent podcast, episode three. Uh, three hours of recorded audio, one hour's 20 runtime. <laughs> That's mainly due to the failure of some technolo- uh, technical equipment. And so there were some re-recordings you may not have noticed due to the frankly excellent ending job. <laughs> I actually thought I thought it sounded a bit the best edited yet. Yeah, I thought it was good. So thanks, Dan. We did miss out the usual uh, conspiracy corner towards the end. You missed a good one, uh, listeners, because that was on whether Hitler survived the Second World War and fled to South America. Um, so that was going to take up the bulk of our fact-checking today, but you don't need to search for that. So anyway, yeah, guys, what do you think? After I mean, I don't know if the listeners can actually believe this, that we each listen to this back before we end up publishing it. <laughs> the fact that this has been pure, <laughs> the peer-reviewed version goes out is somewhat staggering. But yeah, Neil, what, what were your thoughts to begin with? Uh, my thoughts, I enjoyed it. Um, maybe a bit of bias, but I enjoyed the cuisines most. I think it was a very uh, something for all. Um, but no, I think I, I think we were well, well versed in our topics, well covered. I think the football was more on the government furlough scheme compared to football. Um, and the dearly dunkers, there was not much. Just all agreement, basically. But no, I enjoyed it. Yeah, but we we, we did the kind of hard graft, so our listeners don't need to. So they're now informed consumers when it comes to the dunkers and things. I mean, the the main service we're providing here. Um, Dan, what about you? What was your favourite section? It's it's hard to say because I had such little to say this time round. But half of my audio was lost, which was a delight. Much, much, to, much of the che- the cheers, the cheers of joy that came down the line. Um, but no, I thought I thought it was, it was, it, it would have been obviously it would have been a lot longer. <laughs> so, 
so I think I think we, we should be grateful, and all the listeners should be grateful that that that, that the world has been spared in a longer episode of that. Obviously, all the Daily Donkers stuff and the the cuisine was saved. That's the important stuff, you know. Was that was the key areas of conversation? But no, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was fine, and I, I appreciate the, the positive comments about the editing. That's not a problem. Uh, I obviously thought the idea of Dunkers was the best section, so we'll call that a three-way tie this week in terms of the best. <laughs> yeah, the best best bits were, in my opinion, the best bits were deleted. Yeah, yeah, that's a shame. Maybe we'll come may come back to that in the future, but we'll be it'll be we'll be more informed. So, uh, we'll, you know, probably won't be as entertaining. Um, so, as you listened to that last episode, listeners, um, you probably heard this sound. That lets you know that we'll be discussing at the end of the podcast after we've had a chance to listen to it. So we're recording this maybe about a week or so after after we've actually recorded the initial episode, just for us to have a, a listen back over it. So we'll each run through what we didn't quite get right uh, this time and also clarify a few points as well. We'll keep a running tally of these um, errors that we've made and we'll, we'll put it towards like a league table. There was nothing too catastrophic this week, uh, but I'm up first when discussing the Trivial Pursuit. I mentioned that you'd need to go 12 times around the board um, before rolling the appropriate number, but it was probably more about 8 times or so. That would give you about a 25% chance you're actually going to land on the number you want uh, with a die roll. So minor minor error on my part there. Neil and Dan, I think you're up next. Um. Oh, well, we, during during the during the discussion about the the finances with regards to Rangers and Celtic, uh, we made some made some comments with regards to the glaring financial differences between both Celtic and Rangers. And the figures are that Rangers have about a million pounds worth of, of of cash in the bank, while Celtic have about thirty four million pounds. So it's not that we were necessarily wrong, but that's a little bit more clarity and a bit more detail on the matter. I believe this is me up next. Uh, we've got Indian restaurants per capita. Uh, there's one. I, I made the bold claim that uh, Britain's probably got the one of the highest. Uh, Scotland, sorry, has got one of the highest densities of Indian restaurants per capita. Um, but there is no comparison table to this. That was just a a personal opinion. Uh, so it's also worth mentioning that 85 to 90 percent of Indian restaurants in the UK are actually owned by British Bangladeshis. I just find it interesting um, because, yeah, because it's obviously two distinct countries with distinct cuisines, and uh, the fact that we associate uh, the Indian food that we're used to eating um, with India, and in fact that uh, a lot of the the trades on by British Bangladeshis is. So it was interesting. I also made the probably somewhat biased opinion or ba- um, somewhat biased claim that Scottish salmon is the highest quality in the world, uh, which has been found to be true for farmed salmon, but for wild salmon, Pacific wild salmon is uh, highly more as well is more well regarded. Yeah, specifically the Chinook salmon. I found out is the most well regarded salmon in terms of taste. I mean the. Sockeye salmon's quite uh, up there as well. Where's that from? Uh, that, I think that's Pacific as well. I mean, we might need fact check 
this part of the air, but yeah, Atlantic is the only Atlantic salmon's the main salmon in the Atlantic, believe it or not. And there's uh, maybe four or five in the in the Pacific area. But yeah, I've really enjoyed researching all these topics. It's an ugly salmon. Right, uh, carry on. What, what, what's uh, what we've got next? So the, the last one was the Scotland is the top consumer and producer of soup per capita. <laughs> I, I don't know. We we expounded this. I don't know if uh... I've seen it before, but when I've searched it, I've had either Hungary or Scotland as results. Right. I mean, this is difficult because you're finding primary sources on the internet is not easy, and so you're having to rely on various uh, well regarded publications for these facts rather than necessarily the, the base studies but even still nothing came up on this one uh, but yeah we'll continue to purport it to be true going forward, just take it with a pinch of salt any any, any, any such comments regarding soup will be totally <laughs> totally biased <laughs> and, and totally unfounded yeah <laughs> so just bear that in mind when you listen to the future yeah it's been soup heavy the first three episodes so we may not revisit for a while but yeah that's it um, so thanks again for listening and we'll be back next week with some more topics for you thanks very much I've been Gregor I've been Dan and Neil sayonara sayonara